This is a Rocket Audio production. So you found us, Rocket Fuel, the podcast that's a weekly one-to-one interview with someone that's affected youth culture or youth marketing. You have found us, though, just in time for the last episode of season three of Rocket Fuel. We're going to do a retro Rocket Fuel this week. We've got Charlotte from the bookseller. She's one of our absolute favourites people to know. She's in charge of all things kids' books at the publishing bible, if you like, the industry bible called the um, the bookseller. She's really good quality. She gives some great insights. Do you think anybody that could benefit from this episode or any other episode of Rocket Fuel be sure to let us know. I'm James, James Erskine. I'm lucky enough to work for Rocket, the people behind Rocket Fuel. And ahead of our next series, do us a favour. Get in touch. Drop me an email, james at wearerocket.co.uk. And it will be really good to see your reviews, ideally a five-star review, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back soon. So the first thing that should be said is Charlotte Eyre, children's editor at the Bookseller. Thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. You're welcome. Charlotte, we've known each other for a little while, but one thing I don't know is about your career and your background. How does one end up being children's editor at the Bookseller, the trade title for the publishing industry? Bring your journey to life. Where, where have you been? How did you end up where you are? Well, it's a bit of a circuitous route, really, which I th- but I think a lot of people in media can say that. I studied French and linguistics at university, and I didn't know what I wanted to do as a job, but I did know that I wanted to go and live in France for a bit. So I essentially took myself to Paris one weekend with about 75 CVs in an envelope, and I'd pushed them through the doorway of companies that I thought looked quite interesting. And one of them was called the French Music Export Office, and it's an EU-funded organisation which promotes music, French music around the world. They called me up and said, would you like to do an internship? So I said yes. So I went there and um, enjoyed sort of writing and things. Um, and I then applied for an internship at a French media company in Montpellier in the south of France. Uh, so and I got that so I spent a year training as a journalist in Montpellier and um, I was then mid-20s and thought now I want to go and try and live with Lo- in London which I did um, annoyingly that was also um, the 2008 recession so right. I got a job in London for two months and then I was made redundant <laughs> you know oh. <laughs> quite young no money yeah. so that was tough but then I got a job with um, an American publisher of magazines called Crane and they publish magazines on things like plastics, the car industry, the insurance industry and I learned a lot about reporting and editing and all those sort of things and in my spare time I volunteered with um, at Oxfam Books and I ran a little book festival for them in Ballam. Oh wow. Yeah I mean very Yeah tell us about the festival, what were the highlights, who did you have there, What, what happened? Um, well, I remember the, the the session that was really popular. There's a lady called Margaret Bateson Hill, and she still writes and publishes lovely picture books today. Uh, at the moment, she's got one out with Alana Max, and she came and did a story telling session in the shop, um, and that was good fun. And we also did a Roald Dahl biscuit making session in a church hall in Ballum. 
I enjoyed that as well. How awesome. Yeah. And so when this, um, when the bookseller were advertising for people, it was my husband who at the time was my boyfriend said, it combines your journalism skills and your love mm. of books. You must apply for this. And I did and I got the job. And that, that's, so you've been there a fair old while then by the sounds of it. How long has it been? Well, seven years, but wow. time out in the middle for maternity leaves. Sure. And in terms of the role, it's it's up to you to understand all things children's books. You're the voice of children's books for those that read the bookseller, which is the trade title for the publishing industry, correct? Yes, I, I mean, I should say that we have a children's book reviewer called Fiona Noble, who's fantastic. So I don't actually review any books. Right. But- um, but what I do do is, like you say, I report on the market and I interview authors and illustrators um, and we, we write about all aspects of the book trade. So that could be what's happening with libraries to Walker Books' financial results for 2019. It, yeah. It's a really wide range. So this trade industry, if you like, uh, knowledge came from Crane and, and those exciting and glamorous titles like plastics and the car industry. Um, in terms of your journalism career, let's focus on you for a bit. Have you have you had a mentor who's or whether a formal mentor or a number of informal mentors as your careers progressed? I definitely um... I definitely have. I was very lucky. My very first job in, well, when I was sort of training to be a journalist in Montpellier, I had a boss called Ahmed, who was fantastic. He lives in Belgium now. He runs, he does work. He's done all kinds of journalism, but he was just the perfect boss because he was incredibly supportive. He was very engaged and he was very, you know, he talked me through everything. If I ever had any problems, he would help me solve them. He was just fantastic. So that got me off on a really good start. Mm. I think at the bookseller, um, Julia Eccleshare has also always been a bit of a, an idol of mine. Um, yeah. She's been in the children's book world for a long time. And I really look up to my colleagues, Fiona, who I mentioned before, and Caroline Carpenter, because they are so passionate about children's publishing and YA publishing. Their yeah. infection and their knowledge sort of inspires me to do a good job as well. And I would say, you know, Imogen Russell-Williams, who's the children's book reviewer at The Guardian, is a friend of mine. And again, so talented but also an incredible knowledge of the market out there. It's always good to bounce ideas off people like that. Yeah. In terms of your, if you like, professional makeup and, and how you operate, how, how do you like to be managed and what you like as a manager? Oh, that's a really good question. I think um, with management, I, I sort of like open communication and dialogue, but I don't like it in a very enforced manner. I'm not a fan of the every Tuesday and every Friday, we will sit down at half past 11 till 12, that style. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of that because I find it a little bit forced. Yeah. Um, I quite like the old, let's go to the coffee shop down the road when we've got a big project coming up and talk it through. Um, and like I say, just keeping the methods of communication open. And in terms of the qualities that your colleagues have, what do you look for when you want to collaborate and work with somebody? Are there specific qualities or do you look for something different from everybody? No, I mean, I think I'm a big fan of um, everybody having, me included, everybody having deadlines and everybody sticking to those deadlines. And I think in, and you probably have this as well, in the types of jobs that we have, we, everyone has, you know, six or seven different projects on the go. Mm. It's really good to know when, 
when a project needs to be, when the stages need to be done by. Um, enthusiasm and passion, I think, uh, always make me feel quite passionate about things. Like I mentioned Caroline before, who runs the Wire Book Prize. Um, I'm always really impressed by her enthusiasm of the market, her enthusiasm, but also her knowledge of the market. And that sort of makes me want to help her and work hard and that sort of thing. Do you, do you think in terms of, I mean, you're working in a trade publication, people have been prophesizing the, the death of print for a million years, seemingly. Obviously, the bookseller has a very healthy online presence. But, but what about you as an individual? How often are you innovating for the bookseller? And how often are you taking things to the bookseller to give some bigger thinking to? Do you know what I mean? How, how, how close an eye have you on innovation, Charlotte? Um, I think we, everyone at the bookseller is always trying to come up with ways to improve our reach, to help the book industry more, to collaborate with the book industry more. Um, I'm, one thing I want to do is uh, a survey um, and speak to librarians at the moment and talk about mm. what librarians did during COVID because I hear stories about wonderful things that librarians did, children's librarians did to help other yeah. people, but that's not being talked about. Um, I, you know, I was very proud. I actually, I mentioned the Wire Book Prize earlier. I actually set that up and that wow. was, that was something that um, the old owner of the bookseller, Nigel Roby and I were talking about on the, tr on a train once mm. conference and uh, that resulted in us setting up the prize. So I was very proud of that. Um, and I think the book industry as a whole is very innovative and it's fast moving and people at the bookseller like elsewhere, we want to be part of that. <laughs> What would you say professionally you're known for, Charlotte? What do people say when they're talking about you? Do they say, that Charlotte, she's like this? I mean, in the in a work environment. <laughs> well, I'm not sure, obviously. I mean, mm. uh, but I, I think that I'm known for having um, good taste in books. I think I'm quite okay. <laughs> spotting, you know, because we get sent things in advance. Yeah. So I think I'm quite good at spotting things that I think will, will be a hit. Um, I think I was one of the first people to talk about Beetle Boy by M.G. Um, Leonard on social media, which turned out to be massive. So I was, I was quite proud of that. I was one of the first people to say, guys, you should read this book. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think I'm a fairly sort of competent, fast worker. I think I get things done. So I hope people think about think that about me, too. I, I'm going to focus on you for one last question in this mm. opening section, Charlotte, and that is, where next or what next? I mean, I know, I'm sure you love the bookseller. I know the bookseller love you, but do you look at other opportunities? Where does a children's book editor go after the bookseller? <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting question because I think um, sort of 20, 30 years ago, there were more opportunities. You know, we talked about Julia Eccleshare before. She started at the bookseller a long time ago and ended up at The Guardian. The national media doesn't really cover children's books in those ways anymore. So that's a bit of a shame. Um, so in terms of that, I don't know. I mean, I'm always thinking of new fun things to do. Um, earlier this year, no, I tell a lie. In 2019, I joined the board of Pop-Up Projects, which is a not-for-profit organisation that helps get you know, books into the hands of readers. And I really enjoyed that. So that's a volunteer role. And this year I launched um, a newsletter called Pitch Your Story. Okay. So sharing my knowledge with aspiring uh, children's writers and illustrators, because what I do at the bookseller is for people who are already in the industry, but I wanted to share my knowledge with the people who want to get into the industry. And that's gone really well. I launched it in August, I think, and I have about 1,200 subscribers at the moment. 
That's great. What's what's the newsletter called? Forgive me if you did say. Pitch your story. Pitch your story. Well, we should promote that and we should tell it, tell the world about it. So I'm still here with Charlotte Eyre, who's the children's editor at The Bookseller. And before we open the pages, if you'll excuse the pun, of the world of children's books, I actually want to take the opportunity, Charlotte, to talk about trade publications and industry publications. Because I briefly mentioned it in the first section, people have been prophesizing the death of print and the death of print journalism. But actually, if you find the right niche, and in this instance, the right industry then trade publications can thrive and I think the bookseller has just been sold to new owners you made mention of that briefly broadly it's going pretty well isn't it and tell us about the bookseller and tell us about the wider industry and trade press yeah I, I think um like you say, the, the, the bookseller is really well established. It's been around since the 19th century. And for a lot of that time, it was um, it belonged to one family who kept it going and going. So we have a great reputation within the book trade. We're very much part of the book trade. Um, agents and publishers know that when they want to announce a new debut or a new book deal, they come to the bookseller. It happens like clockwork. So that's an advantage. Um, and I think, you know, we happen to write about an industry that produces things to read in print. So, you know, they like to read things in print themselves. Yeah. Um, but also trade magazines um, across the country, the ones that do well, I think have like us branched out into other areas. Um, a former colleague of mine built a Jobs in Books Twitter page that has hundreds of, you know, thousands of followers. We have, um, we run conferences, we run book awards. I think mm. what, what trade magazines have to do is generate other forms of income. If they sure. can do that, then it's a successful prospect. You've preempted my next question, which is, are you a, 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 a journalistic business or are you an events business? I'm, I'm guessing the truth is somewhere between the two. Yes, I think so. I mean, the events bring in um, a, a lot of revenue. We do the, the British Book Awards, the Nibbies, once a year, mm. and we organise... Um, uh, the Y Book Prize, which I mentioned before, and various conferences, the Children's Conference, which I, I program, mm. uh, Marketing and Publicity and Future Book, which is all about, you know, the future of the book. And, uh, you know, we have hundreds of people who sign up every year and buy tickets, and it's a really good revenue stream for us. Great. Okay. Well, let's go into children's books then, Charlotte. It would seem silly to have you here and not talk a lot about children's books. First of all, I mean, we're lucky enough at Rocket. We've worked, I think we've worked with HarperCollins for nine years and Penguin Random House for eight years. So we're I'm, I'm very much in the children's books team. So we're kind of aware. I always theorise, it. actually, it definitely is eight years because the week that my son was born was the week that we got our first brief to work on a children's book. So there you go. Um, Books play a unique part in the life of children for those that are lucky enough to be immersed in books. Do you want to unpack that for us? Why is it a unique relationship that you theorise children have? Mm. Well, I just think I always have to talk, come back to my personal experience here, which was when I was a child, when I read a book, I was almost literally transported to that world, whether that was, you know, Roald Dahl's Matilda or Enid Blyton Adventure, you know, my house or my school in Shropshire just disappeared. 
and I was in that world and to me that is just magic and I still can't get my head around the fact that a piece of white paper that has black scribbles on it which is essentially what letters are mm. um, can do that people talk about Harry Potter as if he was a real person mm. he just exists in the imagination of one author and to me to me, that becomes, obviously books educate, they inform all of those sort of things, but it's what is so magical for children is that they just take them to other places. I want to ask a big question first, if that's all mm -hmm. right. And I think from the outside world, there is a bit of eye rolling that goes on when you hear about X celebrity has got a children's book out. It, 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 there are two kind of things of this. One is, are they writing the books themselves? The second thing is, do we need more celebrities? I mean, where do you stand? Is it a bad thing because children's authors have been phased out or is it a good thing because they're bringing more people to the market? Okay, well, there's there's lots to unpack in this question. I mean, <laughs> I'm not cynical about the fact that it happens. I think we live in a celebrity world and celebrity sells and publishers like all companies can make money out of it. I also think there are different types of celebrity writers. You've got people like David Baddiel, who is a talented writer mm. and clearly writes his own books. That's quite different from a publisher approaching somebody like Alicia Dixon or Sir Chris Hoy and says, look, just be, do a range of children's books and we'll give you a ghostwriter. So that's mm -hmm. different types of things. Um, the thing that I am a little bit cynical about is when publishers say, oh, well, we need this money to boost our business and that trickles down to support yeah. authors because year on year um, there's uh, an organization which looks at how much authors are paid and it authors I mean the, the average earning for a full-time author is something like 14 15,000 a year it's shockingly right. low mm. so I don't think that money is trickling down um, and I also find it incredibly depressing that we now live in a world where um, the only time the media will pay attention to children's books is what it's is when it's by a celebrity author so let me ask another question then in this, and, and it's kind of twofold. First of all, is you mentioned ghost writers. Are, are the industry aware of when a ghost writer is involved and when a ghost writer isn't? Is it an open secret? Does everyone know? And then the second thing is looking at celebrity for a slightly different prism. When YouTubers, to use a deliberately old fashioned term, came to the marketplace, were you as cynical? Were you more cynical? How, how did that work? Um, well, to answer, answer your question about YouTubers, um, I think when that happened, I sort of thought, like a lot of people in the book industry thought that it was a bit of a phase. Publishers yeah. like to follow trends. Yeah. And I think that what happens is that often you know, Zoella had a huge deal and was very, very successful. So then the publishers think, oh, we'll look at other YouTubers. But actually, if you look at what's happened in the past few years, that isn't happening as much. So I did think it was a bit of a flash in the pan. And with ghostwriters, uh, again, to go back to Zoella, that caused a big um, hoo-ha in the national press because um, PRH said Zoella wrote the book and sort of hid the fact that she wrote it with a ghostwriter. And then a Sunday Times journalist sort of found out the truth and put it in the paper and you know people were sort of quite horrified by that so now people are much more open so Chris Hoy and Alicia Dixon when their books came out they were very open about the fact that I am working with a writer and their name is X and their name is on the cover so I think that's a good thing that is a good development. Okay in terms of 
if you like, those lost treasures, those hidden gems. Mm. What should I, as a parent of an eight and a six-year-old, know about that perhaps I won't? Are there, are there books that have been released that you think deserve a much bigger audience than they actually get? And, and, and let's sing their praises. <laughs> um, I think that... I mean, to, I, I wouldn't actually want to sort of single out some names because I think actually sure. the, the majority of books, I think most people think they know about children's books and they know maybe the top five or 10% that, that get stocked in uh, supermarkets and the front page of the Amazon homepage. And then there's, there's literally hundreds of authors all down here um, who, which, you know, they never get any, any attention. So I think as a, as a parent, the best thing that you can do is sign up to the Facebook review site Topster or follow children's book reviewers on Twitter um, or follow Book Trust on Twitter because they, they review lots of books and have a lovely website with lots and lots of kind of interviews, book reviews, uh, puzzles, all kinds of things like that. And sort of really put an effort into widening your, your children's bookshelf. And don't just rely on classics as well. I mean, I love, you know, the Narnia books, Blighton, Darn, I loved all of that stuff. And I think it's still important for children to read the read older books because of it, language development, it teaches mm. them about history or those kind of things, but they also kind of need to, to read about, read books that are being published now. In terms of those old books, um, do you think everything's aged well? Do you think there's some that haven't aged well? <laughs> no, I think lots of, no. Uh, uh, Books often don't age well. I mean, it's especially when it comes to portrayals of uh, race and gender. Um, so, you know, mentioned Blyton before. I mean, when I was a kid in the 90s, I couldn't get Blyton even then in the Shrewsbury Library, um, which I loved because, of, yeah. because of, you know, the librarians thought it was totally sexist, which it is kind of sexist. I mean, my parents always took the view that if I if they stopped me reading it, then it would just make me more defiant, number one. And number two, as long as I was reading a wide range of books that showed all different ideas about life and, you know, more modern books with more up-to-date stuff, then that was fine. And I sort of think as a parent, you kind of, it's a tightrope, isn't it? You're sort of, you have to kind of balance, you don't want to kind of restrict books as well, but sort of maybe educate them, nudge them in the right direction instead. It's, it's, it's a tricky path. So, yeah, it's an incredibly tricky path. Again, I think if my eight-year-old son had his way, it would be exclusively Jamie Johnson and then Roy of the Rovers. And it's about pushing him out of his comfort zone into other areas and finding the stories behind the characters or the, or the characters behind where they are in, in life. You know, it doesn't have to be a footballer to go on an emotional struggle, if you like. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask a question in terms of where the children's book industry is going. So, and, and I want to cover a, a few things around that. I mean, first of all, what do you think are the most important releases of the last few years? And then what do you think might happen next? Future gaze for us, Charlotte. Well, I think um, to go back to Williams and, you know, I know lots of people are not a fan of his books. I don't love them, but uh, he has changed the market. He is the, the Blighton or the Dahl of our times, you know, beloved by children, not particularly mm. appreciated by adults. Mm. Um, I mean, he makes millions, absolutely millions. And he, he, I think he really kicked off this trend for um, 
getting celebrities to write children's books, but, he, but also um, getting comedians to write children's books. You know, it seems to be now that if you're a famous comedian, you write a children's book. That's what you mm. do. Um, so I think he's hugely influenced the market. Um, and I think another release, which I think is an exciting development, um, was Look Up by Dapo, Adiola and Nathan Bryan. Because, you know, we do need more diverse children's books. And, but for a long time, the, the diverse children's books that we had weren't getting much attention or weren't particularly, you know, they weren't hitting the bestseller lists. They were published by quite small publishers. But the fact that this book, look up, it won the Waterstones Prize. It hit some bestseller mm. lists. It's very commercial, which is key. You know, it's incredibly commercial. I think that is a really exciting development. So I, I, I think and I hope is that that's what we will see. Uh, more books by, you know, diverse authors and illustrators becoming bestsellers, not just being published by little presses and, you know, not being noticed by readers. Um, in terms of looking forward then, do you think that there are some children's books that children love and some children's books that parents love? Are they <laughs> one in the same thing? Or you mentioned it with Walliams in, in a way. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think children... One thing that I've certainly noticed is that children love funny books. So they love books by people like Sam Copeland, uh, Liz Pichon, um, you know, those kind of young middle grades, funny books. Yeah, I mentioned David Williams, David Baddiel, all of those sorts of people. Because um, children like to laugh and they like sort mm. of funny, silly adventures that make them giggle. Um, and as adults, we sometimes you know, we don't dislike those books, but we don't really give them much attention. We sometimes think, oh, you know, a proper a proper storybook, a traditional storybook or something like that. Um, uh, so I think in a way we, the industry, as well as, you know, parents, we should, we should maybe pay more attention to those funny books, celebrate them a little bit more, develop them a little bit more. I want to look at the business side. You mentioned commercial success being key because um, it, it benefits the wider industry. First question around the kind of commercialization is one around the business models. A, are there, are there business models that, if you like, people don't know about? So I think people presume that the publisher gives a small advance to a new author, a bigger advance to an existing author, and then they make money on the sales of the books. Are there other things that are happening out there that we don't know about? Are there any interesting business models that you've seen? Um, I'm quite interested in um, selling foreign rights. I mean, I always have been and I, I go to the Bologna Book Fair and the London Book Fair, which is like a giant marketplace and publishers from all over the world try and sell their books to other countries. And the UK is actually quite strong on this. So mm. you can actually sell a lot to France, Germany, the US, China. So China buys a lot of books. Um, so as, a, as an author, I think that's what you want. You, you don't only want your books to be a success here. You kind of want publishers to take them up and and sell them and put nice front covers on them for other markets um and you know i think there are increasing opportunities in audiobooks i was talking to someone who sells um foreign rights and she was talking about it. there's a huge increase in publishers all over the world wanting audiobook rights so not just the, the rights to publish the, the print book they want to translate it and then record it and sell it in i don't know mandarin or german or whatever so that's really exciting and you know there's also the the, the treasure if you will, which is quite rare, but what people want is a TV and a film deal. Yes, completely. So uh, you, you've preempted when David Williams comes up with his next book or when an up and coming author think about their children's book. 
do you theorise that they should be thinking about the film deal, the TV show now, or do you think they should sell a book first and, and sell the story and the brand later? It's a really interesting question. Most people, when they answer, say this question, say, no, no, just write the book that's in your head. Don't think about the business, you know, be true to your vision. And You've never sounded more like an English teacher or a drama teacher, Charlotte. Yes, I could, <laughs> I could hear that being said to me even. Yeah, nice, well done. Yeah, and so, well, I, well, I can, I think there's a lot of truth in that. There's also absolutely no harm. And I think it's very sensible for, aspiring writers and even aspiring publishers to know what the market is, to know where the hits are, what works, what doesn't. I mean, for example, talking to scouts. Um, so those are the people who help foreign publishers buy books from other publishers. Um, I, and they were saying that the, the, the demand for YA is not as high as it was, but overseas publishers want lots of middle grade um, fantasy. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to know. And I'm not saying, um, that as an aspiring writer, you should think, oh, you know, I, 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 I hate fantasy, but I'm going to try and write it anyway. <laughs> but if you if you like writing fantasy and that's, you know, something that you enjoy doing, there's absolutely no harm in thinking about where the opportunities for that story would be. Where can the story go beyond the book? In terms of that beyond the book, do you think publishers, do you think authors are guilty of not thinking beyond the book? Do you think sometimes there is a little bit of, I suppose one could paint a, a nasty parallel with the music industry that buried their head in the sand, ignored live, uh, ignored streaming services like Spotify um, and things like that for ages. Whereas now it seems like they might be the future of the industry. Do you, do you worry that, that publishers are have got their heads stuck in, a, in the sand and there is too much tunnel vision? Or do you think there is an acceptance that things will have to modernise one way or another? Well, I think everybody wants to maximise the money that they can make out of a story. That's yep. for sure. With publishing, there is a specific issue that arises when it comes to rights. So who owns the rights? Now, if I'm a publisher and I want to buy your book, I can buy different types of rights. I can buy UK and Commonwealth publishing rights. I can buy world rights. I can buy world rights, including audiobooks. And this is where there is sometimes a problem because the author and the agent might say, well, okay, you as the publisher, you can have the rights to publish this, but I don't want to give you the audiobook rights because I don't think you will do anything with it. And I don't think you're the best person to do anything with it. And, you know, I've heard stories of agents saying, well, I gave the publisher the audio rights and then they sat on it and did nothing. So I think that isn't an ongoing issue and ongoing discussions about, about rights, who, who should have them and then how should they be developed? Yeah. And, and I think also, perhaps there is something you know some problems might arise that the book world operates in a very specific way and often deals are done and then books come out 18 months later and I know that people in industries like tv and film and tech think oh the book industry is so slow why don't they do anything faster mm. so that could be part of the problem as well I want to ask some questions um, now around almost the perception and how books sit with the end audience. Do you think there are topics that aren't very well covered by children's books? Do you think there could be more on bereavement? Do you think, do you know what I mean? Do you think that the children's book industry do a good job of equipping children for the realities of life, I suppose? Um, I do, actually. I think there's an incredible amount of books on every subject. Um, there aren't enough uh, 
books featuring, you know, I think we need more diversity and more inclusion, that is for sure, and more representations of children with disabilities, for example, yeah. um, that that's something that there could definitely be more of. Um, and this isn't just a problem of producing, it's also a problem of marketing and retail, you know, everybody works in a system. So even if a publisher does a, a book, a great book about bereavement, to give your example, they then have to market that and find the right place to market it and sell it. Um, and then the retailers have to pick it up and then the retailer has to put it on the right shelf. Um, and so it's kind of not fair. I always feel a bit sorry for publishers because we always talk about what publishers are doing, what they could do better. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone operates in this microcosm. Um, and I, you know, it's, it depends on everybody working together in the right way to get a book in front of the reader. And then, you know, and also, uh, sorry, to just one more thing I think we've no, got a really problem in this country in that with libraries and we don't have enough libraries and like children's librarians in particular are losing their jobs um schools now are being built that don't have libraries which is crazy so they don't even employ a single librarian so um you know 20 30 40 plus years ago that librarian would be the key person in get making sure the book that someone produces about bereavement gets to the right child but if we don't have those librarians you know, that, that connection is not being made. When you mentioned libraries in the first section of this chat, I actually made a note to talk more about librarians, so I'm pleased you brought it up as well. There was a tweet that I saw where David Baddiel, again, ironic seeing as we've spoken about him, responded to a school librarian's tweet. And it, I mean, I was aware, I think partly because my kids go to well one of my eldest goes to a, a school with a library but i was also aware from my own experience of going to school just how important school librarian is in this in this almost ecosystem this one librarian had written a tweet to david Badil saying because there are no school visits that are happening at the moment due to covid is there any way that you could give a shout uh, out to these two pupils who have loved your books because it started them reading and david Badil said look when i started writing children's books I expected some things but I never expected to feel as touched as this or, or words to that effect and it was really lovely for a number of reasons but not least because it shows just how important the school librarian is in that ecosystem it can't be understated enough can it <laughs> no definitely not and um you know there are various moves uh you know the reading agency do things to help sort of teachers in primary schools read you know books that are coming out and so the teachers then can pass on that those books and that knowledge to their pupils but you know teachers are very very busy people they've got homework to mark and mm. in primary schools they've got to teach maths and science and geography and a little bit of french and i mean they do everything it's crazy so i just think it's really sad that you know nowadays we're expecting them to be librarians as well and sending them loads of books to say read these as well yeah um Let's, I want to ask some specifics now, some perhaps quite some dumb questions, if you like. People have spoken about for a little while. I mean, audiobooks, I get. It's a separate business. I think it is going to go get bigger and bigger and bigger as more and more speech audio is created. I can see children being huge consumers of audiobooks. I get that. Other in other kind of future gazing things for a while, it looked like personalization could have been it. Do you think there's a future in that personalization or is it a one gimmick, one Christmas present wonder? <laughs> there's lots of people um, trying to do that, set up small little companies and some do it better than others. 
There's a couple which I can think of are quite good, but some which I think are not so great. And I wonder with those books, if it's something that we adults buy because we think that's cute, you know, I can put, you know, my niece or my friend's little boy in a book, but do, does, do I mean, do, do, the, do the children want that? I don't know. I mean, they, they sort of, my son's got a couple and he reads them and it's fine, but he doesn't enjoy them any more than he does any of his other picture books. So uh, yeah, I can't see them, it, that business model becoming a major part of the business anytime soon. I'd agree with you. Let me ask another question. This is probably one I should know the answer to. And I want to ask around, let, let's go kind of middle and middle grade and lower now. Let's talk about illustrations and the importance of illustrations to children's books. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost as important as the text. So two things, how important is having the right illustrator, the right partner? And also, silly question, when did when did David Williams meet Quinton Blake? When when do they meet on that journey? Does it happen at the start? Is it retrofitted? Does it change every time? Hmm. Um, it's so important, isn't it, to have have the right illustrator? And hmm. it's usually the publisher who puts people together. So an author, I mean, a publisher will have usually have you know know of illustrators that they like and they want to work with and let's say they receive a text that they like they will then say to the author well I've got this person and you know do, do you like his style do you like her style and then they'll say to the illustrator do you like this text you know the author and the illustrator have got to like each other's work first of all um but sometimes they don't meet until you know that book has won a Waterstones prize or you know they have a book launch and that that might be the first time that they actually meet which is quite quite interesting it is. I mean, I mean, it's hugely important to get the right illustrator and I don't think even I until you know I've been doing this job for quite a long time didn't appreciate the work that goes into making the right pairings and then the backwards and forth there is not just with the author and the illustrator but the art director the editor you know everybody involved in that process they do a lot of work making sure it all fits together on the page. Two final questions in this section Charlotte um the, the first one is should be relatively simple and that is this we live in an age where people are talking about the importance of mental health we we just put children through probably the worst year anybody can remember um i don't think that my daughter is any less clever in fact i think she's brighter than my son hopefully i'll never hear this but she is definitely behind in school where she should be because what's been going on with with kind of lockdown and with not going to school do you theorize that in about six months time we're going to be flooded with books that will be exclusively about the mental health of children <laughs> well what was quite interesting is that um there was a real trend for it in the, sort of 2018 actually um so publishers being very aware of concerns about mental health books um and there was quite a lot published then um so I mean, in answer to your question, I think, yeah, I think it will continue to be a focus. And what is quite nice is, is publishers doing quite age specific things. So mm. there'll be books for teenagers talking about their specific worries, whether that's studies um, or, you know, sexuality, um, mm. those kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, there'll be books for younger kids about maybe confidence and going to school by yourself and moving up, moving up from nursery to school even. So I think that's what we'll see is lots of mental health books, perhaps, um, quite specific age focused product um and then final question sorry i didn't pre-warn you of this one and uh, the reason is it's because it's one of my wife's questions and despite the fact she doesn't listen to the podcast she regularly has the best questions and she asked the question about gender splits mm. do you think 
there are books written for girls and books written for boys. And do you think that there's a problem in that or not? <laughs> I don't think there are. So I would say about 10 years ago, I don't know if you remember this, there was a trend for people saying adventure stories for girls or yes. adventure stories for boys. And it had it in big letters across the title. Now, I think that was my theory about this is that it's because of Amazon. And so you go on Amazon and you think, what do I want? Oh, uh, adventure stories for a girl. And then, of course, up pops this story and then you buy it. So for the publisher, it was kind of an easy win financially. But then, of course, there's a bit of backlash to that. And people said, no, 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 I'm not interested in this. Um, so I think publishing is very aware that they don't want to do that anymore. Um, of course, there will be books that have um, lots of female characters in it and adventure stories. And then you'll have adventure stories with lots of you know, male characters in it. Although, again, publishers are be becoming more and more aware that they don't want that to happen. Um, but what they can't control, of course, is if a school or a library or a parent only buys really old fashioned books that perpetuates those stereotypes. Yeah. Um, or if an adult buying the book says to a child, oh, I know Robin Stevens has got gets really cross about this because she writes beautiful, brilliant detective novels where the two main characters are girls. But she says they're not just for girls. Mm. I want boys to read this too. But obviously what she can't control is if an adult picks up that book in Waterstones and says, oh, it's got girls in it. It must be for a girl. Yeah, it's it's real really interesting one. I mean, I can only speak. Funnily enough, I'm in, I'm recording this um, on my iPad, and I'm actually looking at the most recent Roy of the Rovers book, which I'm currently reading with my little boy, and it's actually got Roy on the cover crossed out uh, with Rocky uh, written in its place, who's a Roy's sister. Mm -hmm. And it's funny as the book and the narrative switches from being about Roy to Rocky. And yeah, to, to absolutely prove your point, my son's certainly not less interested in finding out about Rocky than, than he was about Roy. Mm -hmm. But then also I do sometimes wonder whether this is a thing entirely of our own making. I, I really don't think children care. I remember once putting out a social media advert for Immediate Media's magazine, um, where it's um, there's, there's Mega Magazine, which, being honest, is written with a nine-year-old boy in, in their mind. And I think we said everything that boys will want to read about. And we got quite a lot of backlash on this social post saying, uh, I suppose that um, girls can't read it then, or there'll be a magazine for just girls. And the answer to that was, yes, it's called Girl Talk, and it's another one produced by Immediate Media called Girl Talk. I think the gender kind of divide thing is is often a, a construct that adults do as opposed to children. So, yeah. Um, in terms of, if you like, children's publishing, give us a helicopter view, Charlotte what's going to happen next? What's the biggest release? What's the biggest thing that's going to happen over the next 12 months? I think over the next 12 months, I mean, we're in a bit of a strange post-COVID time. So I think publishers are playing a bit of catch up with, you know, things that um, were supposed to come out this year, but weren't. But I think, again, without sort of naming names, because I don't want to single anyone out, I think sure. that... Um, Publishers are going to be working very, very hard internally to um, to publish more diverse books. And that isn't just getting white authors to write characters of colour. It's about um, getting a much more diverse stable of authors and illustrators who they work with. And there's huge moves within that. Uh, so lots of publishers are doing um, training courses or, you know, illustration courses and agents looking to mentor people, authors looking to mentor other authors. So I think that is going to be the biggest. I mean, it's, it's been something that's been happening, but I think 
you know, especially in this kind of, um, you know, after the Black Lives Matter movement and the impact that that has had on the world, I think there's going to be concerted efforts to really push that. So our last section of the chat, uh, still here with Charlotte Eyre, who's the children's editor at The Bookseller, which is the trade and industry bible for the publishing industry. Um, it's our rocket fuel section. Now, the rocket fuel that we are talking about here, Charlotte, is practical insights, some takeaways that our audience of people working in youth marketing, youth culture can take and bring into their daily lives. So first question, in your experience, Charlotte, what's important to young audiences? Fun. You know, they just want to have fun. They don't have any of these adult hang-ups of, is this good for me? Am I doing it because, you know, that's the cool, intelligent thing to do. They just want to enjoy themselves. Um, you can maybe slip some educational content in there if you want, but essentially they just want to be gripped and enjoy themselves. Okay, nice answer. Um, what do you think's changed about young audiences and what do you think will change next? Okay, I think, um, again, this isn't, pro this isn't you know, particularly insightful, but it's, it's always true, is um, the amount of choice that they have. They are constantly, I don't like the word bombarded, but in terms of um, what they have in front of them, the options are just immense, whether that come, whether that's books or television or magazines or toys or YouTube channels, whatever it is, there is so, there's so many options in front of them, which I think we as adults sometimes fail to get our head around. Yeah, I'd agree with that, definitely. What's really interesting, actually, just on that is, is Netflix, they always, they never cite other streaming services as their competition. They always, A, they're fighting a different battle to everybody else because they want to be a global TV channel that's never happened before. But B, they never say when they say, are you watching what Amazon Prime are doing? Are you watching what Hulu are doing? They always say, no, we're watching what video gaming is happening. We're watching other pressures on time. If they're not watching the TV, then they're a competitor. And I think you're right. It's, I, I do think publishers shouldn't be looking at other publishers. They should be looking at other things that affect children's yeah. time. I'd agree. Um, who gets it right and who gets it wrong when talking to children? I'm not expecting you to name names, but feel free to if you really want to. Well, if we're talking about people or companies from the publishing world, I, I sort of think that, um, you know, you know, we're talking about funny authors before who don't, you know, mm. we sort of tend to just ignore them, really not ignore them, but we don't really sort of praise them as much as we should. And I think there's some people like, you know, oh, like MG, you know, people who write funny books like Sam Copeland, he really, yeah. really makes me laugh. And he just talks in a way that just makes children, you know, howl with laughter, whether that's in, in his books or in his um social media posts or events that he does with kids. Um, so he kind of connects with them really, really well. On a company level, um, I always think that the partnership between Peppa Pig and Penguin Random House is just, it's just really clever. Um, they take the storylines, they take the characters that, you know, the children love watching on Netflix or Five Milkshake or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and they know that those parents want, you know, board books that have bright colours and don't bend and can be chucked around the room by a two-year-old. And then they <laughs> put those two ideas together. And, you know, mm. they're fantastic. I mean, my son, when he was, he was obsessed with Peppa Pig. And we had loads of the books. We used to read them over and over and over again. And it's just a great example of how a, a publishing company and a brand can work together. As a mum, Charlotte, forgive the mm. personal question, are there books that make you 
teary-eyed. I have one example that there was a Harper Collins release, and I think again going back to the fact we got our first uh, brief from a, a children's publisher, and it was Harper Collins, and it wasn't this book, but I think they sent me this book as a congratulations for having a, uh, a baby boy. Whereas in fact I did no work, and my wife did all the work. But there you go. And Tootin Pop and Whoosh and Chug, written by the same Scandinavian author. Just now, if you were to read them to me, and they're still upstairs, absolutely bring back memories of being a new dad. Have you an equivalent? Oh, well, and not when I was a new mum, but um, Dogger by Shirley Hughes gets me every time. I mean, that's really? a classic, isn't it? And he loses Dogger and he's so yeah. distraught. And, you know, we all know how awful it is when a small child loses their teddy bear. And I know he's going to find Dogger again. I know it's going to be all right, but that gets me every time. Bless you. Charlotte, it's been a great chat. Is there one takeaway from our conversation? Or it could be outside of our conversation because I've asked rubbish questions. Is there one takeaway that you want our audience to go away with? Yeah, I think I just want everybody outside the publishing world to know that, again, quite often the children's books that you think you know about children's books and you just know this tiny little amount that are being published. And it, like, this is this huge world and there are so many authors and so many titles. And yes, they're hard to find and publishing could do a better job of talking to people. But, you know, look at Book Trust, look at Topstar on Facebook, um, talk to librarians, talk to, you know, booksellers in your local bookshop and... And that goes as much to parents as to also perhaps video game producers or TV and film people who are looking for stories to develop. Just don't think you know it all. There's so much more out there. Charlotte, thank you. That's a brilliant note to leave it on. Where can people find you if indeed you want people to find you? <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm on Twitter at Charlotte L. Um, air spelled E-Y-R-E. And um, I've got my newsletter. Please sign up. for it. It's called Pitch Your Story and it's on Substack. Brilliant. Charlotte, uh, um, Children's Editor of the Bookseller, thanks so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. Thank you. That was Charlotte from the Bookseller. This has been Rocket Fuel, season three of Rocket Fuel coming to an end. Another set of brilliant guests lined up for season four. We're not 100% full though, so any recommendations would be really good. Let me know, james at wearerocket.co.uk. In the meantime, leave us a five-star review and send us exactly who you think would make the perfect guest on Rocket Fuel. And we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. This is a Rocket Audio production.